we have these kind of two camps of users, the researchers and the developers. And developers keep telling us like, hey, I just want one button. I just want like the best model to come out. And then like a lot of the researchers want to kind of, you know, fiddle more with the parameters. And, and they, I, I think we can probably satisfy both for a long time. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Today, I'm talking with Peter Wellander, longtime friend and currently VP of Product and Partnerships at OpenAI, running GPT-3 and other things. And before that, research lead at OpenAI, where he was one of Weights and Bias's very first customers. And before that, head of machine learning at Dropbox. And I'm also talking with Boris Dema, machine learning engineer at Weights and Biases. And we're going to talk about GPT-3 and the recently announced integration that GPT-3 did with Weights and Biases. So this should be a lot of fun. So Peter, you know, the last time we talked, I think you were working on research at, at OpenAI, and that's most of the time that I've known you. But now we find that you're VP of, of product and partnerships at, at OpenAI. And I'm kind of curious what that means and, and what you're doing day to day. Yeah, sure. What I do today, do today, today is quite different from when I did uh, research, uh, for sure. For me, uh, doing research has always been about kind of um, solving the hardest problems that are out there uh, in order to actually have some some sort of impact on the world. So I'm kind of personally much more driven by the kind of end goals of research rather than the research itself. It's like really fun to do research, you know, go down and, and explore things uh, research-wise, but it's like, it's always been with, with some goal at the end of it. And one exciting thing that has happened with kind of with, with GPT-3, like a lot of the things that I, I did when I started at OpenAI was like, I, I did things in, in the, on the robotics side. And with robotics, it, it's still, you know, there's still some gap from the stuff you can do in the lab and what you can do in the real world. And with GPT-3, um, when we kind of got uh, our result, our first results in GPT-3, it was kind of clear that we had something that we could start applying to kind of real world problems rather than just do cool demos. Like when I worked in robotics, what we got at the end was a really cool demo of a, a robotic hand solving Rubik's Cube. But it's like it's not like you could start deploying this in everybody's home and 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 even if it, even if it worked robustly enough to do that, I don't know if it's how useful it would be to kind of solve Rubik's Cubes. A uh, very expensive way of doing that. Uh, but with GPT-3, like we, we had a kind of a language model that you can now apply to solve all kinds of different problems, like everything from translation to summarization to um, to, to things like classification and question and answering and so on. It was a kind of a very flexible model. So what we kind of set out to do was to kind of start just seeing if this was good enough of a model to actually solve real world problems. And, and for me, that's just a really fun area to focus on. It's like when you have this kind of really powerful new technology that has a, the potential of just changing a lot of things in the way they work. Um, it's all about kind of finding the right problems to go after and then seeing kind of how you build, uh, you, you take the, the, the tools you have in your toolbox to kind of solve those, those problems. Um, the difference is that what I did as a researcher was very much kind of coming up with the right kind of benchmarks and the right ways to kind of measure progress where there was a goal that was really far out and you kind of needed to come up with these kind of toy ways of uh, evaluating progress and now it's like customers telling us like, hey, I'm trying to apply GPT-3 to this this use case and it doesn't work or it's too slow or, or something like that. And it's like, um, 
it, like those problems are much more concrete. So, you know, my my day to day, it's right now. It's it's much more around kind of building a team that can kind of solve these these real world problems with the technology that we have developed at at OpenAI. When you when you look at GPT three versus the other approaches for for large you know language models out there that that kind of seems to be a trend. Are there kind of key differences that you you notice in in how it works? Like, is the take different somehow? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what I really like about GPT three and the main way in my my mind that it is different is that it's just extremely simple. All that GPT three does is so GPT three is like it's a kind of a large language model, big neural network. And it's using this kind of transformer architecture that, that Google introduced a couple of years ago that has been really popular and is basically powering all different language models these days. And it's starting to kind of make its way into other areas like uh, computer vision as well. Um, but the, the way GPT-3 is kind of set up, is, it, it's very simple. It's, um, it has some context, which basically means it has, it can look at kind of a history of, of text. So maybe like if you're reading a book, you can look at uh, the page of text or the paragraph of text and then it's trying to predict the next word. And that's the way that GPT-3 is trained. It's just trained on lots of texts from lots of different sources, mostly from the internet. And it's just trained to kind of over and over again, predict based on some words it's seen, predict the next word. You know, you can start with only like a few words, but like when we train these models today, we, we train them on the order of like a, a, a thousand or a few thousand words. They can look back at those a thousand words and then try to predict the next next word. So like the setup is super, super simple and you just train it on these huge data sets of, of text in order to uh, keep on predicting the next word and get really, really good at that. And I think the surprising thing with GPT-3 was that if you do that and uh, then you make the model really, really large, so it has a huge capacity of learning, um, then it gets really good at a bunch of tasks for which you previously needed specialized models. Like if you wanted to do translation, you would need a specialized kind of translation neural network. Or if you want to do summarization, similarly, you would put up, you would set up uh, your neural network in a particular way and then train it on only summarization tasks. And what we found with GPT-3 is that you actually get very close to state-of-the-art performance on a number of these benchmarks that measure things like summarization, translation, question answering, and so on with a model that has just been trained on, on the internet to not do any of those tasks specifically, but by just being able to kind of reproduce uh, text in a similar way that it, it has read it. And, and so, so practically though, how do you apply it to say a translation task? Like how do you take predicting the next word and make it do a translation? Yeah, that's a great question. So in, in a lot of those other large language models, like there are certain steps where you could, you would sort of, take a piece of text and you would encode it. So you would like create some representation in your neural network. And then you would have sort of a, a decoder that would take that and then kind of write some sentence. So if you did translation, for example, you would encode that into some sort of representation. And then you would have a separate piece of your neural network that took that representation and tried to output what you wanted. So the input might be like a sentence in German and the output might be a sentence in, in, in English. And you know it's been trained specifically for that. And for GPT-3, to your question, then what do you do with GPT-3? Like the simplest way you would do it is that you would provide a few examples of what translations might look like in just pure text. You would like write German colon and some um, you know some sentence in German, and then English colon some sentence in English. Maybe maybe you would 
you, you could provide only a single one, then, we, then the setup is called like one shot. You can provide a few examples of like basically German code and English code examples. And then you would put in like the new sentence that you would want to translate. Um, that's called few shot training where you have a few examples. And the model would just, by looking at the pattern of what it's now seeing in its context, it can predict, um, kind of, it can produce a translation. So it's like a very simple setup. Like basically the way I think about telling GPT what to do is a little bit like how you would actually tell a human to do the same thing. Like if you're writing an email, if I'm writing an email to you saying like, Hey, Lucas, I want you to translate, uh, some, some sentences. What I would do is like, Hey, I would just ask you, please translate these sentences. And I would like maybe provide a few examples to give you a sense of the tone. Like, do I want a more formal translation, more casual translation and so on. And you would pick up on the pattern. You, you would given then a, a sentence in German, if you, I don't know if you know German, but like you would be able to translate it to English. And it turns out like now with our latest models, like you don't actually even have to provide those examples. You can, you can often just ask the models just as, you know, you would ask a human, like, Hey, translate these, this sentence to me or uh, summarize this piece of text. We just found that that's how people wanted to use the models. We kind of made them more work like that, but like, that's how simple it is. You just kind of tell it what you want to do and it will do its best attempt at, at just doing it. So did you make a concerted effort to train the model on multiple languages or was it mostly English or where did the, where did the corpus come from? We actually did the opposite. Like we, we initially, when we trained GPT-3, we made a concerted effort not to train it on other languages than English, because it turns out that even though these models are huge, there's like a trade-off in your data set mix. So if you train it on kind of English, but then lots of other languages, it would just not end up being as good at English tasks. And like, ultimately when we train this, we want to kind of see just generally like how good can it be at more general capabilities? Like we didn't care as much about kind of translation. So whenever we put in like extra languages, like that would just be at a cost of like being good at performing other tasks in English, like question answering and summarization and so on. So, um, but it turned out like even by explicitly trying to kind of filter out most other languages, probably like a few small percentage points of the data turned out to be in other languages. And even with that, the model is just incredibly good at, at translation. Um, it's kind of close to state of the art in, in a, a lot of translation tasks. You know, I'm, I'm a native Swedish speaker, but I've lost my ability to kind of write things in Swedish these days because I never do it. Uh, so what I do these days is like I write it in English and I ask GPT-3 to kind of translate it to me. And that's like usually my starting point. You won't get it perfect. I need to, you know, fiddle with a few things, but it's, it's kind of surprisingly good. And like the amount of Swedish training data in the model was like really, really small. I think, you know, we've been constantly updating our models and making them better and better. So now we are introducing more and more language data as we kind of figured out how to make these trade-offs in more optimized ways. But yeah, like originally we actually wanted the opposite. We just wanted to be really good at English. And is it predicting words or is it predicting like one character at a time? How, it's, how does it's, that work? Yeah, it's neither it, it, of those. It's actually predicting something called tokens, which is like um, part of words is maybe the way to think about it. Um, for the most kind of common English words, they are captured by a single token. Um, and a token is it, basically what it is, is it's, it's sort of, I think, you know, current setup, we have about 50,000 of these tokens and we map them onto kind of sequences of characters so that it ends up being like, you know, a common word like hi or the ends up being one token. But then if you have a more uncommon word like encyclopedia or something, you're probably going to break it up into two or three tokens. So it's like word pieces that just makes it easier and more efficient 
for these language models to consume text. In, the, in, in principle, you can actually do it at a character level as well. It just gets very inefficient. But you know that's where the field is, is probably moving. It actually is going to just do it at, at the character level. But I would think that might make foreign languages really hard. Like, for example, would Asian languages be impossible then if they have far more um, tokens? Or I guess maybe you could argue they've sort of done the tokenization for you by having a, a, a larger number of, of characters that encode like a bigger chunk of meaning. Yeah, it is definitely the case that the way you train your tokenizer will have an impact on like the the performance of different languages. So, and usually those two things are trained in two different steps. You would train your tokenizer on some corpus of data, and then you would separately train your your models with that tokenizer on some other data sets. And um, in order to kind of get your your models really good at different languages, you you need to train the tokenizer as well over multiple languages. And it's definitely it's kind of more expensive to uh, use other languages because th they end up like you know a german word just ends up being more tokens because we've trained on much less of it while like english is very efficient where a lot of words are a single token so while it's like so it makes it both a little bit worse than other languages and more expensive i see could i translate something into japanese would that even be possible for for gpt3 oh yeah one one comment i i, I remember was like a, a japanese users of ours they really like to use GPT-3 to translate technical documentation between English and Japanese, because they found that GPT-3 was much better at this translation of technical documentation than, than Google Translate. This was like, you know, a year back, so it's possible that Google Translate is better now, but probably just uh, a chance thing based on like the data sets that we had. I mean, the really cool thing actually with the translation capabilities of GPT-3 is that we haven't really trained the model on explicit pairs of input and output kind of translated pieces of text, like what you usually call in the like aligned pieces of text. It's just like, it's seen a lot of Japanese. It's seen a lot of, well, not super much. It's seen a bunch of Japanese, but a whole like ton of English. And somehow, you know, through learning how to predict the next kind of word, you know, there's been a lot, like enough of little kind of pieces of text, blog posts or whatever, there where like, the author is switching between Japanese and English and maybe doing like some translation on some sentences where it kind of found the mapping and then somehow has a representation that's good enough then to kind of generalize to arbitrary translation tasks. For me, that's just like kind of magical that it's just by reading lots of English text, lots of Japanese text, and then maybe like accidentally finding a few kind of aligned pairs in all of the data, it's able to do that kind of translation. Uh, that's pretty crazy to me. That is really amazing. Is, is it? Is this performance kind of tangibly different than earlier versions of GPT? Like, was there something that happened in GPT-3 where OpenAI thought, okay, we can, you know, we can like use this for real world commercial applications. Was it sort of like a performance level that it, it needed to get above? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the big difference between like GPT-2 and GPT-3 was really it was trained on more data and it was a bigger model, like by two orders of magnitude. I think the original GPT-2 was about 1.5 billion parameters and GPT-3, the biggest model was 175 billion parameters. So it went up by like two orders of magnitude. And since it was a much bigger model, it also needed more data. So th the surprising thing is that that's sort of what it took to kind of go from feeling fairly kind of dumb to interact with. Like GPT-2 was kind of cool, but it also felt kind of 
incredibly stupid most of the time. And I think with GPT-3, it went to being like, you know, sometimes just surprisingly good. Like, don't get me wrong, like GPT-3 does, does a lot of silly mistakes still, but it does the right thing probably like 30 to 50% of the time on some tasks and sometimes even better than that. So it's it's sort of like suddenly before you would need to kind of sample and try out tasks and like like maybe in the once every kind of 20 or something, you would see something, oh, this looks pretty good. And with GPT-3, it kind of started happening like every third time or every half time, like second time or every fifth time. And you're like, oh my God, this is actually for, for things like summarizing text, for example. Like one example we have is summarizing a piece of text in the style of a second grader. And it's just like incredible how the model is able to kind of simplify words, get the gist of a piece of text and so on. And again, it's not perfect. Uh, but it, it's like, it's just really good. And, you know, obviously we have, there's a lot of academic benchmarks. You can then run these models and you can see it kind of just getting much better on all those academic benchmarks. But it, it was a whole different feel to it. When you, when you wanted to prototype something, you know, it, the difference is that now it's just easy to get something that works pretty well. Um, and that's sort of why we decided like, hey, this now it seems useful. Give you two didn't seem kind of really useful to the same extent, but GPT-3 for all these tasks, we felt like, okay, it's close enough to kind of state the art if you have like a specialized model, or whatever, uh, a clever, clever programmer should be able to apply it to, you know, whatever task they have. And, and that was what we set up to validate with the API. What are some of the use cases that you, you feel really proud of where it, where it really works? Are there any that you could point us to where we could go interact with it in a commercial setting somewhere? Yeah, sure. Um, I think some of the areas where we kind of were most kind of surprised were uh, copywriting and question and answering and generally creative writing. Um, for copywriting, what happened there was that there was a number of companies that started building on top of our platform. Some of these companies are like, I think Copysmith was one of the first ones, Copy AI. There's also Jarvis, I think, recently changed their name to uh, a different name, and, and a number of other of these companies. And what they did was really clever because they realized that, as I said, like when you're using GPT-3 to kind of do some task, it's not perfect. So every now and then it would, you would get something that doesn't really make sense. But if you're doing copywriting tasks, like what if like you want to write, say, um, some engaging product description based on some attributes of a product, like a shoe, maybe like um, the type of sole, the color, uh, some other attributes of the shoe, and you want to kind of write something really engaging about that, then um, the problem that you as a human face is that you get into some kind of writer's block, like where do I even start? And what they, what these companies started doing is they, they took GPT-3 and they used it to kind of generate a few kind of starting points or a few uh, variations of how you could write product descriptions. And then what what you find is like more often than not, um, if you generate like five of those those examples, like one of them would look really good, and you can kind of use that as your starting point. You maybe you just take it as it is, or you make some small tweaks to it. Um, it's a way to really almost like aid in human creativity, you know. And I think that's just so cool. It, it was at like uh, writers who would tell us like, hey. I've been trying to write this book for like half a year now. I, I, I just keep on getting stuck in writer's block. And then I started using your playground for GPT-3. And now it took me two weeks to turn out the whole book. It's, it's sort of, when you get stuck, it can kind of create an interesting storyline. And you start as, an, as a creative writer, you start exploring that. Like, oh, that's, that's okay. I, I wouldn't have thought of this character going down in that direction, but uh, let's explore that. And, and then it becomes a much more fun 
engaging process. So it's almost like as a human, now you have like a brainstorming partner that you can apply to all these different tasks. And I think what I found was really cool is to kind of see a number of companies kind of really leveraging that and 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 creating kind of new new experience that just you couldn't you couldn't do before. So I think that one is really uh, exciting. I think question answering is also really cool, but this one was like quite unexpected. Um, we, we, I don't think we would have predicted that one being such a big use case. It seems like one of the advantages of GPT-3 is that it, it works right out of the box. But I could also imagine for some teams, there might be a concern about what do you do if, if something goes wrong. I guess I'm curious, do you typically work with ML teams inside of companies or is it more like engineers that view the benefit here is that they don't have to figure out how machine learning works to kind of get the benefit of, of natural language processing? Or do you tend to like integrate this with ML teams into like a kind of bigger ML workflow? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a bit of a mix, I would say. We've had multiple machine learning teams who kind of, you know, already had their own models that, you know, they, they would have downloaded the models online and so on, and they would have like uh, kind of adapted them for their tasks. And then, you know, they, they find our API and start doing the same thing using our API. And it just turns out that you can get much better performance from our models, like just because there doesn't exist, there isn't like an open source version of the biggest models that we have, the best models. And, and so for a lot of tasks, that's kind of what works the best. Um, but I think probably the majority of our customers are more in the 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 other camp of just really smart developers and you know when i say developers it's kind of it's a pretty broad group like we we see everything from like programmers engineers to like designers pms a number of people like you know have told us that the open api was sort of what got them into programming because they they got really good results from just in our playground where you can interact with our models and they kind of got ideas and they started to learn how to code and they start connected with no code tools like bubble io and stuff like that um, it's kind of really lowered that barrier. Like you don't have to learn, become a, a machine learning expert to get really good results out of these models. You just kind of have to be kind of good at iterating and figure out how to kind of write the instructions to the model. It's a little bit like, you know, it's sort of everybody becomes a manager. You know, you have to give really good instruction to your employee if you want them to kind of do do the task as you want it to be done. And it's very similar with these models. Like if you underspecify your tasks, you're going to get very high variance in the outputs. But if you get really good at specifying and providing a few examples, then you get really good results. And and that's not a machine learning skill. That's like almost more of a kind of task specification, like management skill. And so like, I feel like a lot of people can kind of pick that up really, really quickly. Um, I think that, that I, I've been really excited about that, just seeing so many people get access to these models that just seem like you have to have a PhD in machine learning to, to, to work with before. I feel like I've heard of people talk about a new role called prompt engineer that might be related to this of figuring out how to prompt GPT-3 yeah. to get it to do what you want it to do. So, 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 so this one is interesting because like, so we, um, early on when we had the first version of the API, we had a really smart guy who, who is a like world renowned author, but also kind of a programmer, Andrew Main. Um, you know, he, he was one of the early, uh, users of the API and 
he kind of got the internal name of like the, the prompt whisperer, you know, he, he or like GPT-3 whisperer. He, he kind of really knew how to craft the prompts to kind of get the best results. And um, since it's been trained on the internet, you kind of need to put your mind in like, how would the text on the internet kind of start? So if you wanted to kind of a really good recipe, you had to kind of start writing in the tone of like a recipe book or a food blog post or something like that. It's not like you could just ask the model to do what you wanted it to do. So I think initially, like there was a big piece to that. Like you really had to be good and, uh, at understanding kind of the intricacies of GPT-3 and, and design really good prompts. Over the past um, past one and a half years since we launched, we saw people struggling with this a lot. So we developed a new set of models we called Instruct GPT, GPT uh, which actually just like last week became like the default in our API um, and. The reason they call it instruct GPT is because you just provide instructions. So, like, I would say, like, prompt design is a little bit less of a thing now. Like, you can just tell the model what you wanted to do and pro provide a few examples. There's still a, like a little thing about like the formatting might impact like how you provide your examples and so on. Not like GPT three is like super robust to that, but like sometimes it does matter a little bit. Some tweaking uh, matters, but I would say like. It's less of a thing now than it was like a year ago. And my hope is that it becomes less and less of a thing and it becomes much more almost in, in, interactive. And you've also launched the ability to fine tune the models. What's the, the thinking there and, and where is that useful? The surprising thing with GPT-3 was that you got really good results, zero shot, where you, where you only provided like an example, uh, zero, no example, just the instructions of like, hey, translate this sentence from German to English. Uh, or you provided few shot examples where you, you know, we provide a few pairs of, of German and English. And with just a few shot examples, you could get like just surprisingly good results. But what that meant in practice is that, you know, the accuracies are very task dependent, but like for some tasks, maybe 30% of the time you got a, an output that was, was kind of acceptable to kind of put in a product. And then for other tasks that were more simple, you'll get it like maybe 70% of the time. And so when it's like not good every time, you have to be very clever in the way you kind of expose it in your product. And that's why like, for example, it worked well for a lot of those copywriting um, uh, companies, because you could just provide a few examples and you kind of knew that at least one of them would be good. And that's all the user needs. Um, but with fine tuning, what you can do is basically you can customize your model. So you, you can provide more examples of the inputs and outputs you want to do is if you want to do kind of translation, or if you want to say you want to kind of summarize articles, you can provide like a few hundred examples of articles that have then human written summaries, and you can actually update GPT-3 to do much better at that task. Like you couldn't put all those examples in your prompt. The prompt has like limited space, but like with, with fine tuning, you, you're like working these examples into the connections of these neural network, into the weights of the neural network. And so in some way you have uh, like an infinite um, prompt, like you just, you can provide as many examples you want. Obviously, you know, the more examples, the longer it would take to, to fine tune and the, uh, the more costly it would be. But, but fine-tuning is basically that, that concept of taking a bunch of input and output examples and kind of working them into the model and getting kind of a new version of the model out that's really good at that task for which you provided the examples. It turns out like with only like a few hundred examples or like around a hundred examples, you can kind of get significant boosts in accuracy. So um, we had a number of customers that have used it, like KeeperTax, they're doing these, uh, they're like analyzing transactions to find uh, these 
tax write-offs and stuff like that. And so what they're doing is like they're extracting the relevant pieces of text, they're classifying and so on. And so they fine-tuned models and got much, much better results with fine-tuned models, for example. And we've seen that over and over again with, a number, uh, with our customers. They can get really good results that can often be good enough for a prototype, but then in order to get it to kind of high enough accuracy to put it in production, which is usually like more than 90% or 95 or 99% fine-tuning on, on some data sets that they have or they put together, kind of gets them all the way. So um, that's that kind of enabled many more applications uh, than you could do before. So we, we just made it very simple to do this kind of fine tuning. Cool. And you know, I have to ask you about the the weights and biases integration. I mean, we're, we're so excited about it. I don't know if people listening would know that you use weights and biases from the very early days and provided a ton of incredibly useful feedback that's that's in the product, but I was curious how you thought about how that integration might be useful for users of GPT-3. So, so I think this is the background of my, my usage of Wisdom Biases. Like I, I was like one of the first users and it's just like, it just improved my research workflow uh, so much that uh, I'm a big kind of Wisdom Biases spokesperson now. Like I just like, it, it's like basically what it does, right? Is that it allows you to kind of track your experiments in a really nice way. As you're training your models, you can kind of get all the stats. You know, anybody who's kind of trained machine learning models knows that you kind of have to um, you have to look at a bunch of curves as you're kind of doing your training to make sure that the models are kind of learning in the way that you want. And uh, a lot of like the work you do as a machine learning engineer is to kind of do that sort of iteration on your models and, and seeing if you can improve your results. And a lot of that is looking at those learning graphs and so on. And, and it's really good because like Wisdom Bias provides you with this kind of history of the experiments you run. They let you compare experiments and let you kind of track your progress and share it with your team and, and so on. And what we did is basically make an integration so that as you're fine-tuning your models, your GPT models via our API, all your experiments, all your training runs show up in the weights and biases interface. So you get that same convenience, but now for things that are training in our clusters and so on. So you can kind of see um, as our fine tuning process is happening, as like, you know, the model is updating its weights based on each new iteration or going through the data set, you can kind of see your uh, metrics and so on improve. And, and you can also kind of, you know, we provide a number of different parameters so it lets you kind of iterate and try out different parameters and so on and see your progress. So yeah, it's just much more delightful to uh, train your models that way to kind of have that place where you can go and, and look at your results in an ongoing way. So that was a super exciting integration for us. Kind of lets you kind of keep track of all your fine tunes in a much better way than we have like a command line interface. It's not at all as pretty as the weights and biases way of tracking things. So, Boris, you you actually said you did the integration and you said it was one one line. Is is that right? I mean, my my question for you is more you know how you thought about how it might be used. But I'm curious, was it really a one line integration? I mean, there's a few more in the in the code, but the way for the user is just to type a line, to type like uh, OpenAI 1DB sync, and you can automatically sync all these runs to a dashboard. The idea was that um, there's a lot of people who use the API that are not uh, ML engineers. So you don't want them to have to learn, okay, what, what am I supposed to log or how do I take care of a data set? And the OpenAI API was like so convenient when you want to train a model, you just pass a file that is your data set and it cleans up the data set and then you pass a new command and it fine tunes everything. So it was a bit the idea of keeping the same simplicity. So you will just type that one command and then, you know, all the magic happens behind the scene and you have all your visuals and you can compare your models and see like uh, 
Is it worth giving more training samples? How much did my model improve from that? What is the effect of tweaking that little parameter here? And uh, what data set did I have when I trained that model? So it's trying to make it as easy as possible for users to benefit from all the features when, when they don't necessarily know weights and bases initially. And I guess for, for both of you, what are the parameters that you can actually tweak? Because I, the way you've described it, it sounds to me like there, there might not be any parameters. How, how do parameters get involved here? So before I answer that question, one thing that, that Boris said that really stands out to me, by the way, like why I think why I really like this integration generally was that there is this concept of just making these kind of advanced things very simple. And I think I, I still remember when, you know, Lucas, you, Sean, and Chris kind of did the first recent biases demo and it was basically just like import 1B and and like, you know, it was like to kind of just start logging the experiment. I think like that philosophy of just making it super simple to get going is something we have tried to also do in, in our API, where it's like, you know, you import OpenAI and then like a single API call, a single line of Python or JavaScript kind of gets you to use GPT-3 and, and start creating kind of completions and stuff. I, I really like that kind of that, that simplicity and that's what we try to do with the, this integration. But um, to your question about the kind of parameters, we've tried to make this quite simple in, in our API. Um, we, tr we try to kind of make the defaults very, very good. And, and generally, you can get really good results with fine-tuning without fiddling much with our parameters at all. But some, some kind of makes more of a difference. Like you can set, for example, the learning rate. That's how much you're updating the weights with each learning step. Uh, you can set things like how many passes you want to go through the data. It turns out if you go through the data too many times, then you're going to overfit on your data set. So these... GPT-3 models being really big, you often only need like on the order of like two to five iterations through your data to get really good results. And if you go further than that, like you sometimes overfit. And you know, there are more advanced parameters as well. But like, I cannot be like playing a bit with the number of epochs you want to train it for and the learning rate that gets you 90% of the way there. And if you start filling with other parameters, you know, it's not going to give you that much more. Was part of the thinking of leaving the parameters in to just give the the person tweaking it the joy of, of messing with parameters? I think, honestly, you know, I would love it if it was completely automatic. Uh, that said, we do have a number of more research-oriented customers who really do like the fiddling, so I think it would be hard for us to remove it. But, like, you know, as I said, like, we have these kind of two camps of users, the researchers and the developers, and developers keeps telling us, like, hey, I just want one button. I just want, like, the best model to come out. And then, like a lot of the researchers, want to kind of you know fiddle more with the parameters, and and they, I, I think we can probably satisfy both for a long time. Boris, I don't know which category you put yourself in because you make some amazing, beautiful demos, and you also I know that you love to tweak parameters. I'm curious your experience playing with um, the GPT three model. I definitely like having the good default because initially you don't really know what you should change. And let's say you would choose the wrong parameter and nothing works, it wouldn't be a nice experience. So I like that if you don't choose anything, it's already going to, to be pretty good. Uh, then I really like to, to tweak the parameters to see, okay, what would be the effect and try to play with intuition. And uh, in addition to the parameters that Peter mentioned, there's two that interest me a lot too. The, you can decide which model you fine tune. So there's a model of different size. And um, like if you use a larger model, maybe your API is going to be a bit slower, but your accuracy will be 
will be better. And maybe sometimes you don't need it. Maybe sometimes you need it. So I, I like to see the effect of which model I use. And I like to also see the effect of um, how many training samples can I give. Like if I give only 20 samples versus giving 100 or 200, because then it gives you an idea on how much my model is going to be better as I develop a larger data set. So th those are kind of parameters I like to, to play with and, and see what are the predictions based on this. Yeah, that last one I think is like it's actually super important. I, I think it's like one of the most kind of common advice we kind of give people over and over again. It's like start with a small set of examples, then double it and see how much of a different like improvement you get. Usually, you know, if you double amount your amount of training data, then you're gonna get see some linear improvement in your error rate. So if you have like 10% error rate or something, then you double your training data, you're going to get down to maybe like 8% error rate. And then you double it again, you get down to 6% error rate. And so like, if you can kind of start seeing that trend, then you can suddenly get a sense of like, how much would it actually cost me in terms of like labeling more data and so on to get the result that I, I want and so on. So it's like, it's a very powerful thing to do. Are the results of training these models reproducible? Like how much variability is there each time you, you fine tune it? Would you get the same model if you fine-tuned on the same data two, two different times? Um, I think, so in principle, you can set it up to be quite re reproducible. Like if you basically train it on the same data, like like you keep, like basically what you want to do when you train is it, on each iteration, training iteration, you have a batch of data, like a number of examples. You can actually, in our API, you can set the batch size, how many examples per update you want. And I think like it defaults to 32 or something like that. And when you do that, you also want to shuffle the data. So you want to take a random sample of your training data. As long as you kind of keep those randomizations consistent between your training runs, you're essentially going to get the same model at the end of it. It's going to be fairly reproducible. The only caveat is that in practice, like we're, you know, this, and this is true even for inference, like we have a parameter called temperature where you can set uh, the variability in the output, higher temperature, the more variability. Um, and even if you put it at zero, there's there's no real guarantee that you're going to get completely deterministic output because there's enough like noise and and little weirdness with like floating point arithmetic and so on in the, these GPUs with these really big models that um, it's 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 very hard to guarantee complete uh, determinism. Uh, so we we get people asking about that a lot, and the answer is always like, well, unfortunately we cannot provide that, but you can get something that's fairly close to it. But you should just make your experiment robust enough that you don't really care too much about the determinism. I would think operationally, having everyone have their own fine-tuned model would be much more of an infrastructure challenge than everybody using the API that hits the, the same model. Has, has that been a, a big undertaking to allow that to happen? Like, a, Do you have to like swap in and out the different models as, as people start to use them yeah no for sure like this is um when we started out the way we did fine-tuning was basically you know in some way you almost kind of rented a set of gpus where the models ran on and even like for some of the er absolutely earliest fine-tuning in customer we essentially charged them by gpu hour to some extent uh, like per hour how much they were using the models and you know even from the very beginning like i think like within six months after launching the api we had a few select customers that had fine-tuned models and stuff like that and that's sort of the way it worked uh, the problem with that is like if you're like trying something new gpus hours are expensive so you don't want to really pay for uh, to reserve a gpu for like even a fraction of an hour it just adds up really really quickly um 
So we, we just set a goal of saying like, well, as soon as you have fine-tuned your model, you should immediately be able to just use that model and you should just have to pay for basically the tokens that go, go into it at the inference time, like whatever you put in your prompt. And, and so that was definitely a huge engineering challenge, kind of make that experience uh, really great. Like you just kick off your fine-tune, whenever when it's done, you now get a fine-tune model name out and now you can use that model in the API to just get a result immediately. And you're not gonna be charged by hour or whatever, you're just gonna be charged the same way you're gonna be charged by the API. And so that was really tricky. Our, our, we have like an amazing engineering team at OpenAI has kind of really figured out, you know, a lot of a lot of tricks around balancing where these models end up and caching them in the right way and so on to create create a great experience around that. I'm curious if you you fine tune the entire model or you fine tune just part of it to make it more efficient. Yeah, you can imagine like there's just lots of tricks that we're using to make this happen, but we are like we're constantly kind of trying to figure out new ways of doing it where like. There are challenges with, if you want to fine tune a whole 75 billion parameter model, uh, it can get really expensive and hard and so on. And there are tricks you can do to kind of make it much faster. Do you feel like the thing between you and, and everyone using GPT-3 for natural language tasks is more quality and performance of the model itself? Or is it something else? Is it something about like integration or monitoring of production or something like that? I think definitely the, the key things we focused on when we built the API was, um, you know, what matters the most is really the capability of the models. And then like number two is like, do you need to have fast inference? Like before we, we, we created our API, like, for large language models, nobody cared about inference. Like everybody cared just how quickly can you train them because that's what mattered, you know, so you can get your benchmarks result at the end of the day. So we did just a ton of engineering to make inference super, super fast. Like I remember like over the course of the first few months of us getting the first prototype of the API to customers starting to use it, we increased the inference speed like 200 fold or something like that. It was like lots of effort that was done to make that, that super fast. And then the third thing is like things around safety oriented things. Like, um, you know, one of the reasons we invested in these instruct GPT models is that we, we saw that sometimes you can get surprising outputs um, of models that you don't expect. Uh, like for example, you might write a very innocent sentence and it might turn very dark for some reason, or you might get some kind of more um, biased outputs in different ways. With our instruct-oriented models, by default, they behave uh, in a much more expected way, but you can also specify the behavior in a much better way. So I think it turns out like when, you know, safety and capability uh, kind of comes hand in hand, it's like it just becomes a better product when you can control it better. Those are definitely the things we have focused on. And I think we are, I, I think we're doing much better on than alternatives that are out there. But there's also the third thing that we have kind of put a lot of focus on is, is just like making it really simple to use. The fact that you don't have to load up models that you can just call a fine-tuned model that is just a single uh, line of Python to, to kind of to call the API. Like that's also been really central to us. It's like just we want this to be easy to use by everyone. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. It's really nice to talk to you and congratulations on making such a successful product. Thank you. 
If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it.